Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Michael Leader. I'm Hannah Strong. And I'm Rogan Graham. On the show this week, Tom Hardy is back with an alien on his back in Venom 2, Let There Be Carnage. Director Todd Haynes stops by to talk about his documentary about the legendary band The Velvet Underground. And in Film Club, we're going back to Todd Haynes' fictionalised glam rock drama, Velvet Goldmine. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Yes, listeners, a VVV exciting episode this week. Venom 2, Velvet Underground, Velvet Goldmine. Very exciting, and I'm very excited to welcome back Rogan Graham. Rogan, it's always a pleasure. Oh, thank you very much for having me. How have you been doing? So we're about halfway through the London Film Festival as we speak, I believe. So have you managed to go out too much? Yes, uh, busy, busy. I haven't seen as much as I liked, but um, last night I saw Ali and Ava, the Cleo Barnard film, which I thought was wonderful. Um, and what else have I liked? I really loved Lingui, The Sacred Bonds. Oh, a film that's from uh, a Chad director and um yeah it's wonderful but I'm hoping to cram more in in the final in the final weekend yeah yeah I think we're all hoping to cram in as many films as possible of course listeners you may have been keeping up with our uh, diary episodes dispatches from the festival we've heard from many Little White Lies uh, associates on the ground Hannah how's the festival been for you have you been enjoying your time You've, you were doing jury service weren't you is that all wrapped up yet yeah l- uh, let me clarify that's um Lon- uh, film festival jury not uh, actual jury I don't have any real influence in the world um but yeah no it's it, we, we finished our deliberations yesterday I'm not going to say uh who won because I'm not sure when they're announcing it so um I feel like I could put my foot in it massively if I did uh but no it was it was super fun my first kind of big film festival jury which is kind of the, the plum gig all critics want because you basically just watch films and people look after you for four days um but it was it was really interesting um just kind of thinking about films like that because you're not only thinking about is this a good film you're thinking about what do you want to say with this award and that's something we talked about a lot in our deliberation meeting is um you know the, the Sutherland award which is the LFF first feature award has a really rich history people like Lynn Ramsey uh Robert Eggers um Matty Diop Julia Ducanot have like won this award so it's it is kind of a big deal and you don't want to be the one who picks the director that goes on to um do nothing or just not make very good films so we did think a lot about 
you know the kind of legacy and what we wanted to say and yeah it was it was very uh I, I would say testing four days you know because you are just sat in a in a quite a small room at the BFI just watching films back to back um and you I think at festivals normally you have the energy of everyone else to feed off but when there's only four of you in a room it can be a little bit sort of uh more intense but yeah it was great I've had a great festival so far um I saw I've not seen very much because I well I, ha I mean I have seen a lot because I've been to the jury but in terms of big stuff at the festival um I've not seen a lot but I really love Power of the Dog so mm. that's my like <laughs> highlight so far but yeah I, th I think it's been a, in a been a vintage year yeah well if the winner of the Sutherland this year does go on to be the next Lynn Ramsey we can give credit to you yeah if not like Guy Lodge credit taking credit to the credit. rest of the jury for um, Julia Decano, because she won with Raw, and he's like, ah, oh, I remember when we gave her the Sutherland Award. <laughs> That's what I want. <laughs> well, yes, listeners, listen out for one more dispatch from the London Film Festival as it wraps up this weekend. As I've said on those episodes, I've not seen much this year, but I did schlep up to London this week, but not to see a film for the London Film Festival. It was to see Venom 2, Let There Be Carnage, the big new release of this week, which we should kick off our new release review section with right now. Tom Hardy returns to the big screen as reporter Eddie Brock and his lovable alien symbiote Venom. Directed by Andy Serkis, this romantic comedy sequel takes the Marvel character who's happiest when he's being bad in a bold new direction as he's paired up with a new symbiote in town, Woody Harrelson's Cletus Cassidy, a.k.a. Carnage. So, Venom, 2018, it massively successful film, pretty divisive, but it had its uh, very uh, strong fans, two of whom we have on the podcast today, I believe. So, Hannah, you're all in on Venom, right? Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I just think the world is a dark place and I'm constantly being struck by a barrage of bad news. And if I can sit in a cinema for 90 minutes and just see Tom Hardy having the time of his life, then why wouldn't I love that, you know? I think it's 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 a very simple premise. And uh, Andy Serkis is a true ally to, to tired film critics everywhere. <laughs> so what's the deal with this sequel then? It's a, it's a wonderful 97 minutes compared to the bloated uh, franchise superhero fare we usually get. But what are we getting in this sequel then? Is it more of the same, something a bit different? Um, I think... Basically, they cottoned on pretty quickly, they being um, the studio, and they cottoned on quite quickly to the fact that the thing people liked about Venom was how camp it was. It was, you know, they weren't there for the kind of um, the stuff in the laboratory with uh, Jenny Slate saying uh, symbiote, weirdly. Um, they were there for, like, Tom Hardy jumping in a lobster tank and all the kind of just weird slightly gross um venom stuff basically i mean it sounds obvious but the thing people really loved about venom was venom so um to me it feels like with the sequel they really just lent in to the kind of comedy campy aspect of um the story and uh kelly marcel the screenwriter and i imagine andy circus as well i mean you know i, I think he 
this is very much his vision and when you hear him talk about it he's very kind of enthusiastic and very um very candid as, as well in a way i don't think i'm particularly used to marvel superhero directors being i think sometimes they can be a bit um uh coy because they're trying to get their uh, their, their sequel money um but this is just pure kind of you know it doesn't make a lot of sense um it doesn't pretend to make a lot of sense and it is just like 97 minutes of, of vibes is how I would describe it um it is like the the only way I could really describe it is like a little kid explaining a story to you that's what the whole film feels like to me but but this kid is so enthusiastic you're like yeah yeah come on yeah like I, I'm totally with you small child and I think the additions that they make in terms of the cast are um, really strong. I think that Woody Harrelson is kind of the perfect foil to Tom Hardy because he matches his energy like 100%. You know, Tom Hardy's giving... I, I actually think like it's a pretty complex performance. You know, the guy's got a go from being kind of like Eddie Brock, the loser, to like Venom, the also loser, but like more um unapologetic <laughs> loser than uh, than uh, Eddie and then you've got you know Woody House and just doing his like best um natural born killers over again mm. which I'm always here to see um and yeah I mean it's a really simple premise I think the first one they just tried to, they made it so complicated they were like okay we've got to add all the in all this science stuff with um Riz Ahmed's character and this one's just a serial killer has escaped from prison and he's on the rampage and for some reason Eddie Brock is the only man who can stop him and I just yeah I just I think I really enjoyed the fact that in an age of like superhero movies having to be three hours long because they are so complicated Andy and Kenny said nah man we're not here for that we're just gonna make it 97 minutes and it's gonna be an incredibly um, straightforward story of this odd couple having a fight <laughs> and then kind of the film trying to get them back together for like the big showdown and yeah I was you know what could I say I love Venom that's that's <laughs> one of the, he's one of my boys and as, as you say large stretches of the 97 minutes I, I get the sense that what if if there was a, a longer previous version of this film what they cut out was mostly plot business because what long stretch of the 97 minutes entails is the bickering between eddie and venom some great scenes in their sort of dingy loft flat they have where um tom hardy as a performance is kind of at war with himself and that's where andy circus is a pretty good pick as a director for this somebody's had to do lots of motion capture in the past but also was a master in the late 90s early 2000s of the really intense internalized complex performance and he turned his back on that to become a filmmaker but tom hardy staking his reputation and the uh, and the the takings from the first venom on a film like this is quite interesting i don't think i enjoy it as much as you do though <laughs> hannah uh, rogan so did you what do you make of this uh, what did you like about the first venom and was that reflected in this yeah, I love so I loved it. Um, I remember seeing the first Venom uh, in the cinema, and I was the only one who laughed at anything. It was like a packed packed house. I was the only one who laughed at the end. I was the only one who like looked happy. Everyone looked kind of angry, confused because how dare they not um, 
engage with the law or like you know take this seriously this you know these fictional creatures how dare they you know treat it like it's fun um and that's why I loved it and I and yeah the fact that they just went full steam ahead with that for the second one I mean yeah the screening we were at yesterday a lot of the times it was just Hannah and I laughing and not and like laughing because it's funny not laughing because in a mocking way because there are some really funny jokes or jokes that we found really funny I found really funny um (laughs) and um yeah and uh yeah it was it was great it was uh you know uh, a marriage drama a, a buddy cop comedy type thing and yeah and that and that's it they they come apart they're bickering they're arguing and then they you know reunite to save the world that just that very basic uh tried and true formula and yeah uh, I just I had a great time and I like that they were kind of like well people didn't like the first one we have nothing to lose basically it's like you're either gonna see it or you're not like let's just have fun and they really and they and they really they really did and yeah Woody Housen's great Michelle Williams it's like yeah she's just like an incredible actress because you know a lot of the discussion around the first one is like she's so above this and she said in an interview like well if I I'll do one Venom a year if it means I get to like fund uh, like four Kelly Rykoff films or did, there was mm-hmm. I'm I'm misquoting her but it was something along those lines but she still you still believe her like she's still in it she's still like turning in a great performance and yeah Tom Hardy is just like sweaty and stressed out for most of the film and like, like all of us yeah and just like running around trying his best and I just felt so represented by that no. but um it, it it was a yeah it I had a great time um, with it and it's big and it's loud and it's weird and funny and um yeah we haven't even touched on the club scene oh which... god so you know what like for years marvel have kept saying this is our first openly queer superhero uh, like you know first openly queer character in the mcu and they've made this big fuss about how in the eternals um that you know they're having the first out superhero there is literally a scene in Venom Let There Be Carnage, where Venom goes to a rave and he's wearing all these glow sticks, bless him, and he looks so cute. And he gets on the stage and Little Sims is performing, which I think is just like a masterstroke. She's performing her song Venom, which has nothing to do with the film Venom. <laughs> but apparently Tom Hardy told Andy Serkis, he was like, did you know that Little Sims has a song called Venom? And he was like, oh my god we've got to ask her to be in the film and so they built this scene around little sims having a song called venom (laughs) and so you know she's there she's singing her song doing her thing and venom being an alien who doesn't really understand popular culture assumes that they're like singing the song for him and it was just incredibly sweet and he gets on the stage and he says, I am out of the Eddie closet. And I was like, there we go. Like queer representation in a Marvel movie. I don't want to be like the, you know, the um, half-arsed, like, token character. I want to be the slimy symbiote, like, weirdo. I'm like, yeah, this is, the, this is what I've been crying out for. I think it is just like, Andy Serkis has said in interviews that he really leaned into the kind of, like, the quasi-romantic... Um, campy, potentially gay representation <laughs> angle, and I am so thankful 
to this man for that. I think it is like it it works really beautifully, and it doesn't feel like they're kind of poking fun. It just feels like they're like kind of like baiting the weird like homophobic like Marvel fans. <laughs> you know, they're saying like, yeah, and what are you gonna do about it? We've we've made the movie. You can't argue with the movie. <laughs> so. I suppose it's the distinction between poking fun and having fun. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. This is a film that is having fun, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's also something that is very intriguing about this film. I did not enjoy this film anywhere near as, <laughs> as much as you two did, but it is so intriguing <clears throat> that in the way that this undercuts so much of the pomp of um, the superhero genre, it's in its own way doing Deadpool better than Deadpool in the way mm. that it's almost parodying or undercutting everything we expect and the sort of importance. As you say, a scene like that, which when this scene happens and when, when the equivalent scene will happen in the real MCU, it's going to happen properly and with a lot of pomp and circumstance around it and they're going to have lots of headlines saying, we've finally done this, whereas Venom will just have a lot of fun with it. It's a very odd film and Tom Hardy... You know, fair play to him in a massive movie that's going to be making nine-figure box office. Um, he's bringing a performance that's almost like outsider art in a way. He really isn't. Um, it, it's it's outside of big screen blockbuster movie acting what he's doing, and he's leveraged his stardom to do that. But let's put some scores on this. Um, Hannah, I'll come to you first in anticipation, enjoyment, in retrospect. You know, I was talking about this last night. Uh, with a friend of mine at a bar because he said to me well surely you can't give it four stars because it's it's you know it's venom and yeah. i i kind of like i said you know I, I fundamentally yes i can see the problems with this film i can see that the i think the pacing is off and i wonder if they were told to cut something as much as i love the fact it's 97 minutes i could have happily spent another half an hour in there and I think that poor uh, Naomi Harris's character gets a, gets a raw deal. <laughs> I think uh, they should have just cut her completely because it's so painful to watch her being given just like nothing to do. Bless her, she's really trying. She's really like going for it. We're talking like Pirates of the Caribbean three like levels of commitment to the bit. Um, but anyway, all all this to say that yeah, I mean it's fours across the board for me. I had a great time. I I really did, and I will probably go and see it again. I just think it's so rare that films ge- like create that genuine sense of just like fun and joy that you have as a kid when you go to the cinema. And if that makes me a Marvel shill, then so be it. I'm I'm more than happy to shill for something as kind of fun and warm-hearted as I think Venom. Let that be carnages. <laughs> Rogan, what are your scores? I would say probably five in anticipation. Like. I got so stressed out every time I saw the release date pushed. Um, <laughs> I was like genuinely stressed out. I would say, yeah, probably four as well. I could have spent a bit more time with it. And Naomi Harris's character, yeah, it's just every time she opened her mouth, I was kind of like, oh God, yeah, she's doing an accent. You don't hear her speak much in the film that when she does, I was like, oh wait, yeah, no, hang on. That's, she's doing that. Um, that's her choice. Uh, and yeah, I guess I would give it like, oh yeah, I'd give it like a four in retrospect it just feels like you know it feels like kids in a candy shop it's like okay you have all this money go make something fun so much of the marvel stuff just feels like a long con and it's like okay we're gonna make this so that we can make more money by doing this amount of spin-off and blah 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 and it's like oh you have to stay engaged whereas this just feels like they went oh my god we get to make a massive movie and just threw everything at the wall and i and i appreciate that because I had a great time, yeah. And I didn't feel like I was being taken for a ride. 
basically, which, yeah, is the feeling I get with all this stuff. Well, I'm, I'm apologise for bringing the average down. <laughs> Two's across the board for me. I just couldn't see past some of those those flaws, particularly the way that I feel that it's... Of course, we have star vehicles and we have, you know, protagonist kind of centred films, but this is one where it just felt like Tom Hardy was in the film with himself and didn't really give any of the other amazing actors... Uh, you know, the film didn't give any, any of the other actors their time to shine and as you say Naomi Harris particularly cut almost completely into irrelevance to the point where you're surprised it's even someone of the stature of Naomi Harris <laughs> maybe my problem was not sitting with you two while watching this film maybe that you, I, I would have caught a few laughs by osmosis or maybe we'd have had a cape fear situation where you'd have just been the it is funny because I don't think because I we kept looking at each other very good night and I think that no one around us was having such a good time like we were having a good time at all i don't know yeah. maybe we're just on the wavelength for venom and uh, eddie brock you know and if that's the case good i'm happy to be there yeah i own and it you mentioned how um there was the mispronunciation of symbiote or the strange pronunciation of symbiotes in the first one in this one that gong goes to woody harrelson and his um, pronunciation of the word origin i think he, sa- he says origin <laughs> Every superhero needs to have his origin. There's so many wild things. I don't, you know, like Woody House's performance in this was like jazz. I'm just like, where's he going with this? Like, I, lo- I love it. Like, I-, I love that man anyway. I think he's just a, a pure vibes, is how I would describe Woody House. And, yeah. And never mind the film. But yeah, I just, you know, I keep saying it, but like, it's, I'm, I'm just so here for a film which doesn't pretend to be anything else. I've talked before on this podcast about how much I love Jackass. And I got such Jackass vibes from this. It's just guys being dudes. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that is a, a great take, Hannah. Hmm. That's, I, will, I will re-watch Venom 2 someday through the prism of Jackass. <laughs> anyway, listeners, if you do go out and see Venom 2 this weekend, let us know what you make of it, whether you're pro or anti. Are the usual channels at LWLIs on Twitter or truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email. Up next, we're going into a bit of a Todd Haynes section of the podcast, starting with a new release of his, the documentary The Velvet Underground. Directed by Todd Haynes, this film shows just how The Velvet Underground became a cultural touchstone and much more than just a band. Featuring in-depth interviews with the key players at the time, combined with never-before-seen performances and a rich collection of recordings, Warhol films and other experimental art in an attempt to create an immersive experience into what founding member John Cale described as the band's creative ethos, how to be elegant and how to be brutal. So, I was so on board with this film i'm a big fan of todd haynes particularly when he tackles music in his films like with i'm not there and velvet goldmine which we're going to be talking about shortly i'm a big fan of the velvet underground a big fan of that new york art scene in the 1960s in general and was so wonderfully blown away by this film that as you know the archive the fact that todd haynes starts with velvet underground and expands beyond what they are in a way that his films um tend to he's a very he's very big on his research if he does a period film he's always got an angle on the period you're going to see carol for example you're going to come out wanting to go and see the photography of saul leiter or you go to see far from heaven and you come out wanting to go and watch 1950s melodramas that's the same thing here with velvet underground i came out with a very long list of artists musicians filmmakers that i wanted to go and check out beyond the velvet underground 
but that's me. I was fully sold on this. Uh, Rogan, I, were you a fan of The Road Underground? Do you, do you know what you're getting yourself in for? Yeah, well, uh, I'm a casual listener of the band. I wouldn't say... Uh, no, I feel like I found a lot of their music through movie soundtracks, in all honesty. I'd be like, mm. oh, this is really good. Um, and then, you know, I'll add it to my Spotify, but I haven't... I've never done a deep dive in their music. I'm not a big fan. But even as a casual listener watching this documentary, I I felt it was so expansive and he is very big on his research and really situated them well within the culture of the time um, in a way that, yeah, is can be really difficult for uh, documentary filmmakers, I think, because especially, you know, with a figure like Lou Reed, you could have just really dug down on him, um, let alone the whole band, let alone the time period. But, um, and I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was beautiful. I thought the way the archive was blended and the use of the interviews and watching it, I saw it at London Film Festival mm. and watching it with the crowd, just the moments you could tell the real fans in the audience and the moments that they cheered at, I was like, oh, this must be like really significant. Okay, I'll take a note, <laughs> I'll take note of this. Um, but at the same time, even as a casual listener, I kind of found myself going, oh, hang on, I feel like that bit was left out or I would have liked to hear a little bit more about that. Um, but it is a real tricky balancing act. And um, I still definitely think it's a worthwhile documentary and I'm not sure if anything on this scale has been made about the band before. So, yeah. Interviews. Yeah, exactly. So I can see, yeah, that this is definitely incredibly important and wonderful work and will be like referenced and celebrated um uh, absolutely just for for what it's managed to achieve um especially as they were so disparate towards the end i didn't really realize how they how they ended and unfortunately how many of them died so young that was um like a real gut punch actually uh, at the end of the film but yeah i i, I thought it was really great i i think that there are definitely people out there who will get a lot more from it um perhaps than i did but it's it's mm. well worth your time um even as a casual casual listener or or you know someone who just wants to know more about the period it yeah i'm i'm, I'm really fascinated by that sense of the whether casual listeners would what they would take from this because we've spoken about music documentaries so many times this year summer of soul the sparks brothers We've been coming back to this format and it hasn't you know they've all been quite distinctive spins on the traditional conventional bbc4 format no, none of them have been playing it straight and this is like the flip side to the approach that edgar wright does with the sparks brothers we talked about that one how this is like this is the box set of all the albums we're going to go through one by one talk about them in depth we're going to cover everything from the start right up to the present day but we're going to be so laser focused on the music and the history of the band the velvet underground is like a prism in the sense of the way that a great band or a great book or a great piece of art can open you up to a whole world of experience beyond wherever, you know, putting you in the shoes of like the little suburban kid who happens to get this album and then opens up to a whole world of New York art. And it becomes, in a way, just as good a documentary about that scene, the innovations in avant-garde music, all of Andy Warhol's films, most of which I've probably seen on scratchy youtube uploads but i've never seen on the big screen in such good quality before particularly the um the sort of living portraits that he made where he'd just come and get the figures from his orbit to just kind of sit in front of a camera just 
face on for a, a stretch of time for a whole reel but really powerful footage but then also Todd Haynes brings in Jonas Mikas and the um, anthology film archives crowd as well so it becomes this whole portrait of New York at a very fascinating time in its history a companion there was a film we reviewed on the podcast a couple of years ago called Boom for Real which was a Basquiat documentary at least presented as a Basquiat documentary but was more a celebration of the scene that birthed him in the 70s and 80s of, in New York and it's, it's a similar vibe here where you can go in thinking you're just going to get a music documentary but actually you're coming away with a full meal of artistic experience Hannah what did you make of this were you and also are you a again Velvet Underground fan um so I I think like most um young people who didn't have a very happy childhood I was a big fan of the Velvet Underground as a teenager and um used to have this velvet underground bag that I carried everywhere with me and this really unlocked that memory for me and I was like my god I was a pretentious teenager um but yeah it was funny I was talking to some friends of mine about it who had also had velvet underground um phases as teenagers none of us knew each other as teenagers but yeah of these similar experiences all across the world weirdly enough (laughs) and I was like god I I was very obsessed with the song heroin as a teenager for somebody who had absolutely no concept of like what what a heroin addiction actually was. Um, so I did, I enjoyed it from the point of view of it kind of reminding me a lot of this music that I really loved. And still, I mean, it's still incredible music. It In a way, it, it's so specific and so clearly a product of its time, but it does have this weird ageless quality where, you know, I could listen to the Velvet Underground and Nico and it it feels as kind of interesting and um, singular now as it did the first time I listened to it. And I mean, that would have been the early noughties. So I'm sure it goes back even further. You know, people that were listening to it for the first time in the 90s or the 80s. Um, I think it has always managed to kind of retain this spark and... It kind of surprises me that there hasn't been a documentary about the band before because much lesser bands, much less influential bands have had pretty like uh, reverential documentaries made. And I think it's nice that I don't, you know, I don't know the ins and outs of these things, but if it is something that like Lou Reed's estate control or, you know, whoever's mm. estate control, I think it's I think it's great that they waited until um, someone like Todd Haynes could step up to that mantle and take this project on because I think with a band as kind of complicated as the Velvet Underground you need someone who really understands that scene and really also knows how to kind of bring in other people who understand the scene and I was saying about earlier about um, Jonas Mikus uh, I mean Amy Taubin is mm. uh, quite a, quite a big voice in the film um, and I hadn't kind of realised how involved she was in the kind of that whole like, New York art scene in the 60s. And it is just, in terms of the access, it's incredibly, um, even as someone who's not like um, super immersed in that world, doesn't really know most of these people. I, w- I was like, oh, wow, this is really... I can see that these are the people who know their shit. These are the people you want to be talking about this. It wasn't any of... I think sometimes we're talking heads in films, and I think this is definitely the case with uh, the Sparks Brothers, which I did love, but there is a case of like just filling 
time and just like bringing people in because it's like well why wouldn't we get fleas to talk about the sparks brothers whereas in the velvet underground it is just like it's quite i think it, it is quite um economical about its use of interviews and its use of talking heads because it they all serve a real purpose in the film there's no one who's just been thrown in there for like the star power and in fact mm -hmm. there's some people who i think people probably wouldn't be familiar with unless you're very deep into the velvet underground um, so I really ap appreciated the kind of uh, restraint that I think Todd Haynes showed in this. And I think the thing that was most interesting to me, and we've touched on it already, is the idea of kind of fanning out to show the world that the Velvet Underground existed in and how um, not only they inspired other people, but how they were inspired themselves. I found all the stuff about like Lou Reed and John Cale kind of growing up like probably the most interesting uh, aspects of me and kind of, I think, learning the genesis of this very singular sound was like absolutely fascinating because they really don't sound like any other band before or after, which is um, no, no mean feat, I think, to create something that even, what, 40, 50 years later still sounds um, like nothing else. Absolutely. And actually, on the point about the talking heads, it's a very simple decision, but a profound one. Todd Haynes only interviewed people who were actually there at the time. Mm. That, that was mm. his proviso <clears throat> for, for his interviewees. So that's what creates this time capsule, beautiful time capsule quality. And it doesn't have that moment where it's Paul Morley or some <laughs> modern day broadcaster type saying, you know, talking about the importance. It's all about putting you, situating you in that scene. And even within that, it's quite easy to talk about the the way that it fans out and expands out. But it does have, as you say, Anna, a really great through line talking about the relationships with the members of the band and the way that Todd Haynes uses sort of superimpositions of different footage and at the same time sort of multiple tracks through history. So he um, puts in parallel John Cale growing up in the Welsh Valleys as a piano prod prodigy. Uh, alongside Lou Reed growing up in the suburbs, you know, brought up on television and Bo Diddley and all those 1950s chrome chrome cars and everything, and how very different, there's such different worlds they came from and how they came together. And then a, t a take on the band that's quite subtly kind of, um, uh, quite subtly weaving through this, a sort of teasing criticism perhaps, or leaving the door open to whether Lou Reed was just living a life so he could write about it in his songs but really ultimately he just wanted to be a rock star and he had daddy issues and that was why he couldn't always work with Andy Warhol why he was kicked to the curb eventually why John Cale is unceremoniously you know dropped after the second album as well and why Lou Reed eventually leaves the band as well and the, we don't have much of the time after the band this is amazing sort of firework sequence almost where it's just this throwing of imagery and album covers and snatches of of, of dialogue about what comes after 1970 but i think todd haynes has got his take on the band that's woven through quite subtly there that's quite fascinating rather than just the, what we said on the sparks brothers episode what's great about the edgar wright film is that he is there saying this is the greatest band and you're going to agree with me by the end of this film and you are convinced by the end of that film i don't think todd haynes has that ambition with this film it's something a bit more complex but uh, all the better for it i think but let's put some scores on the Velvet underground Rogan, uh, what's, what scores would you give this? I think three in anticipation. I like a music doc, but again, I was just a casual 
casual listener of this band. Um, I would say probably four for enjoyment. And I think, yeah, I'll, I'll go for four in retrospect because I think I'll, I think I'll revisit it. I think I'll go and listen to the albums now and then revisit the doc and just, you know, have more, have more of a reference point. But, um, I will say what one thing that I really enjoyed actually the bit where they talk about uh, flower power and how much they hate hippies that was the best bit watching that with an audience because people burst into applause um when I can't remember who said it they said you know if someone is coming out with you with a gun you cannot hand them a flower and expect them to you know not kill you and um and I I thought that was uh just a really great sort of uh, distillation of the band and and their fans and the the energy um, and yeah, so yeah, I'll go like three, four, four, I think. Hannah, what are your scores? Um, yeah, I think a three in anticipation. I've been burned by music docs more times than I can count. And I think that the worst thing to happen to music docs in recent memory is Nick, Brun- Nick Broomfield. Um, but I, you know, I trust Todd Haynes. I trust him to kind of take me on a journey even when I'm not particularly interested in subject matter and I can't say I was like gagging to see a documentary about the Velvet Underground um I didn't see it in Cannes because I was just like I'll catch it eventually you know it wasn't one that was like high on my priority list um but then I think probably a four enjoyment um it you know it felt like I learned something and uh as an adult with a very short attention span it's not often I get to say that so um for full uh, full credit to Todd for actually retaining my attention for two hours. Um and I do appreciate trying to do something formally interesting whilst not going like hog wild with the flourishes and you know, it could have been very easy for a film about the Velvet Underground to be kind of very Ooh, we're trying to be lightly read and be all experimental and weird, which is, I don't think it does feel like that. The intro is pretty out there, but like I I was into it. Um, and then I think in retrospect, probably a four as well. It's one I wouldn't really hesitate to recommend to people, um, especially anyone with a kind of interest in that time period, that scene. Um, and yeah, I just, I really appreciate the kind of mastery at hand here for my all involved. I think it is, um, it's an ambitious thing to make a documentary about one of the kind of most iconic bands of all time. Um, and I think that Todd is a master of going big, but then also kind of knowing when to show restraint. And that this film is really kind of a, a, a testament to that. Yeah, so how best to describe this film for me? This was my Venom 2. <laughs> so I'm going to give this fours across the board. I was very excited about this film. I was very much all in, and it really exceeded my expectations. I think, so I reviewed this for the Thwart Lies website when it premiered in Cannes. I was able to sneak into a screening here in the UK and loved it then. I've not had a chance to rewatch it since, but it has just grown in my estimations. So this m- might even be a 445 um, by the end of the year. You know, I don't like to give fives. <laughs> Uh, to uh, <laughs> to haphazardly, but one thing that's really bolstering my my um, my love of this movie was talking to Todd Haynes, who is such a an eloquent and generous and warm interviewee, so knowledgeable. And even though we only had maybe twenty minutes, we covered so much ground. 
talking about some of the things we've already just touched on in the review section, the set, the archive used in the film, the interviewees, the take on the band and the art world that surrounded them. So let's have a listen to my conversation with Todd Haynes. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Todd Haynes, thank you so much for speaking with Absolutely. me. Absolutely, um, great to be here. I don't mean to be facetious, but I'm such a fan of your work, particularly when you cover the music industry. Um, and it, to me, you feel like the filmmaker working in fiction film who's probably our greatest music critic, across <laughs> Superstar, I'm Not There, and of course, Velvet Goldmine, the way that you t tackle stardom, fandom, the music industry, the struggle of the, the mythic proportions that musicians take on. And now you're doing Velvet Underground in the documentary format. And I wondered, why, how did this project come to you and what attracted you to tackling it as a documentary? You know, it was, it was really, well, thank you for that question. Um, I appreciate that. Um, I, this one really came to me as an invitation um, and a question with Todd from, from David Blackman at UMG Polygram, who control, where the masters now reside mm -hmm. for the Velvet Underground. Um, but I think it was after he had spoken to Laurie Anderson, who had moved Lou Reed's archives mm -hmm. to the New York City Public Library. So some things were shifting into the public access, and they wondered if it was an opportunity, a time to, to do a doc, a doc on the, the band and who she would feel comfortable approaching as a, as a potential director. Um, now, I never made a doc before, mm -hmm. as you accurately stated, um, but I was immediately... And down for it. I, I, I wanted the challenge, and I thought this could be really interesting. Mm, absolutely. And so you'd worked in very fictionalized or very, you know, very fiction-based music films beforehand. Yeah. So what were the sort of benefits and maybe challenges of working on something that's more authorized, where you have the music, the access to talent, or access to archive this time around? I mean, the archives is what distinguished this film, the, the avant-garde films, mm -hmm. and the films of Andy Warhol. Mm -hmm. That's really, in, in the most radical way, in a way that 
the more I, as I do interviews about the film and talk to people about the film, I'm like, there's no other band where this would be the case, period. Mm -hmm. So it absolutely distinguishes this, this, this subject and how to approach it, in way, but also hands me, the director, this opportunity. I mean, the thing I wouldn't have necessarily known going in, I, I knew going in that this, this world of avant-garde cinema existed and that this band had a unique relationship to that world, but I didn't necessarily know we'd be able to get it all, mm -hmm. that people would let us, that we, would, that we, could, sh we, we could share it with a viewer without citing it until the end of the film, which of course is hugely important to me because it, it has to be cited and acknowledged and the names of the filmmakers mm -hmm. and artists and the dates in which they come from, from, where they come from is so important. But there's something really beautiful and mesmerizing about being lost in it as you watch it and kind of wanting to know more about where it came from later. I didn't know that those permis that permission creatively would be extended to me. And it, and it was so so it was just a rich such a rich and, and inspiring uh, set of terms and la languages that we got to to play with. Mm. And when you're doing that research, I know that when you're making films like like Carol, you're diving into research about around the period and yeah. photography of the time and, and and so on. But with this, when you're working with music, you're working with some interviews, new interviews you're making, and yeah. then you add. The anthology film archive, filmmakers co-op, Jonas Mikas, and Andy Warhol on top of that, which for me is a film and music fan who sat down to watch this documentary, think I was getting a music documentary. It was such a gut punch to see these amazing films I've never seen before on, yeah. on, on, on screen. Right. How do you then figure out the skeleton of the route through it all, as well as balancing the figures and characters of the dramatist persona? You know, it's as every as everyone says, and it's true. It was true for us, and I think it's true for all. For, for any documentarian I've mm. spoken to. The, the editing of the film is the writing of the film. Mm. And so you're moving sort of forwards and backwards. It's sort of these looping uh, processes mm. that take you back to the material that you've collected and forward into what that material is telling you the story is. <clears throat> that doesn't mean there aren't criteria mm -hmm. that every documentarian is trying to preserve or or even established through the process. Uh, for me, the criteria was really, from the very beginning, and this is sort of true for the fictional films I've made about mm -hmm. music, it's sort of starting with the idea that, like, what is the visual language? This is a movie we're talking about. Mm -hmm. In, and so, you, so I always want to try to find the most appropriate, and that, of course it's always subjective, so it's what is appropriate to me and what I think of or feel about the music, or the culture that it, sort of set in motion or mm -hmm. defined what is the visual language or the cinematic references that best get to the core of what that musical artist was doing in their genre mm -hmm. and in their, their character. Um, and so with this film, it, we had this am amazing catalog of films, but I wanted, it was a balance between uh, the, all, we also had fantastic interviewees mm -hmm. and incredible um, narratives that were being recorded. I just, I think I told my editors, we just have to keep the music and the images leading the experience mm -hmm. and have the words there sort of peripherally and almost feel like the audience was putting it together themselves and not just following 
the oral the, the oral histories. Um, but like I said, it was an embarrassment of riches because we had so much great material on all sides. Mm. That's what's so wonderful about this film for me is that in a similar way to how albums of the day were gateways into a whole world of art, this film, as you say, presents us with so many you know, avant-garde music, so many sources of um, film and art. And I suppose you say that the material and the period helped define the the style, and you're using these frames within frames, presenting these right. images side by side, which is such a radical thing within music documentary, where m mainly it would be a producer at a mixing desk pulling faders up and down, although I do love those sorts of films as well. Right. So is that what you mean by the archive informing the look of the film, the feel of the film, this use of frames within frames? Well, that was a, that was a sort of parallel. I, would, I could have seen full frame mm -hmm. usage of the of the avant-garde films in this film as well, and still have had the images feel like they're leading you. Mm. But because it was starting to happen also within the 60s and within Andy Warhol's films in particular, starting with Chelsea Girls, mm -hmm. which he began as a dual projection um, film that mm. runs about three and a quarter hours. He has two projectors going, one begins, and so you have the single frame on the left mm. of the screen and everything else is black and then the second projector starts mm. and so a second image joins the first and then at the end of the film the first projector on the left ends before the second mm. going black. He would continue to play with that same idea of the diptych in other films that he would make mm. but at the same time he's creating these live shows with the Velvet Underground that are a band on stage, mm. another canvas, another screen that he's projecting onto, and all over the band he would have multiple projectors shoot, showing multiple Warhol films. He would have strobes playing. The first time ever that strobes were being used, the first time a mirror ball was being lit since the, de the, the um, Prohibition era. Um, <laughs> And colored gels playing as well. And then live dancers, Mary and Gerard doing their whip dance mm -hmm. down below. So it was a it was a crescendo, a kind of uh, full mm -hmm. uh, uh, assault on the sensations of the viewers and the participants and the dancers in the room in ways that nobody had really ever seen before. Other filmmakers were also playing around with multi-frame formats with images that would move, you know, using the optical printer, which mm. all of a sudden opened up all these ways that you could put frame images within images and manipulate them on a on your on a frame. So that was happening as early as the late fifties, um, and it would make its way into narrative filmmaking. The multi-screen mm. compositions that would be serving a narrative, a dramatic narrative film. So I just we were just like, oh man, let's just go for this, you know? <laughs> but but honor the what you see in the film constantly is the aspect ratio, the one three three aspect ratio or academy uh, mm -hmm. aspect ratio that is the sixteen millimeter frame is the guiding shape mm -hmm. that is being used multiply in different ways across the whole film. Yeah. There's so much to surprise and delight in this and I wondered in the process of researching doing the interviews or the archive maybe focus on the interviews for one second was there any interview that particularly was an epiphany for you or uh, where you learned something you didn't know before well yeah my criteria for who to interview fell into the same kinds of 
uh, dictates mm -hmm. that I approach to the film as a whole, which was really about committing to the, the time and place mm -hmm. that the Velvets existed and were putting out records. And that was, that was a, a brutal but clear mm -hmm. way of, of disposing of countless brilliant mm -hmm. musicians and artists who could tell you how the Velvets inf influenced them and what they meant. But I said, no, let's just do this, mm -hmm. and we'll try to get everybody that we can. And we started with Jonas Mikas, who mm -hmm. had turned 96 years old. Yeah, yeah. So he was the first interview we made in 2018, and it was the last interview he would be, be alive mm -hmm. for, to be filmed on. Um, but I would say Jonathan Richman blew my mind because he was a witness. He was, he was there to a degree I, I had not realized, first first of all, that he was literally at 60 to 70 Velvet shows in Boston. He became their sort of backstage mascot, teenage driver, friend, you know, assistant, mm. whatever. So he was just constantly a witness to this band during all of its, you know, very important formative stages. But he, so he served as a musician, mm. He served as a music critic because he's so artful and he's playing his guitar and, and demonstrating what the sound meant. And and he was a fan, so he also served that that unique perspective, you know. So that was that was pretty wild. And he was so grateful for how generous that band was to him, which is another side of the Velvets you don't particularly expect. Yeah, he, there's such a purity to him, both on record and as a person. Yeah. That within the amazing set of all the interviews you have, he does present that fan's point of view as well, as well as the personal touch. Exactly. Which is such part of the whole recipe. So wonderful. And I, I, I do want to ask about what I love about I'm Not There and Velvet Goldmine and this film is the way that you find this delicate midpoint between, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say hagiography or iconoclasm. You're, you're, you're not really elevating or undermining a band or a musician in, in this film, you're presenting a different sort of point of view. It doesn't come across as it doesn't it doesn't come across as fully unvarnished, but it doesn't come across as a full right. celebration. So right. when you're handling that tone about how to present a legacy of a band and people who ha maybe have great importance within the pop art world, but yeah. also have detractors or have, you know, various stages of their career where they were probably out of favor. How do you find that tone in between all these things? I would say, look, I have my own feelings about the music of all mm -hmm. the subjects of the films mm -hmm. you just mentioned, and it's a factor. There's no way it couldn't be. But I think it's, in the case of the dramatic films, I'm Not There and mm -hmm. Velvet Goldmine, they're, they're very much about the, the cultural impact that mm -hmm. these artists make, right? Um, but I think in, maybe in all these films, I think the key for me is to leave places where the audience can put stuff together themselves. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why I didn't want too many people telling you what to think mm -hmm. or how to appraise this band so that you're going through it. It wasn't until I heard Lamont Young's drones and watched Andy Warhol's early films that I felt, and I knew all this, I'd done the research and, and interviewed all of the subjects, but all of a sudden, I, I, I recognized it myself, mm -hmm. the, the influences that were, that were crossing over mediums from music to art, music to film, and that's, that's what I wanted to go for. So the audience can make their own 
discoveries. Mm -hmm. And then, then they feel like they're not being told what to think and they can think for themselves. And, and I think that's true for the dramatic films as well and other st strategies of playing with narrative and playing with myth and playing with artifice in those films. Mm. We've covered about how the structure, the tone, the, 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 the skeleton, the, the look of the film came out of all this research, but are you a fan of music documentaries in general? Do you watch those? I do. Are there any that you I, were watching and reacting towards or against when making this film? You know, usually when I'm doing something of my own. I'll do research about the period and the history, and then I won't really want to watch other examples of the kind of film that I'm making, particularly by contemporaries. Mm -hmm. Like, I just kind of want to mm -hmm. be in my own imaginary space that I feel like I'm invent, And also, it meant a lot about going deep into this time and place. Mm -hmm. So I was watching films from, this, from the era more than I was watching new documentaries during during this mm -hmm. time. Um, and now, all of a sudden, there, since there's been one released almost every hour while we've been making this movie, I have a lot of docs to catch up on. I saw Summer of Soul, which I thought was oh, just yeah. so fantastic. And um, that's the most recent doc that I've seen that's been out there, music doc that's, that's been out yeah, there. Yeah, that's a knockout of a film as Incredible. well. Incredible. On the level similar to, to yours, where it's just the sound and the music. And yeah, the, and, and, a, and a lost... I feel like ours was encompassed in some ways, but not literally, the way those tapes were literally boxed mm -hmm. and forgotten about for decades and then unearthed. Mm -hmm. So you could have a, an experience completely presented to a contemporary audience afresh. Mm -hmm. I do feel, I did feel like this visual language and culture mm -hmm. of the avant-garde was um, endangered mm -hmm. and was not you know, necessarily it was it was drifting from our grasp, mm -hmm. and so this film was an opportunity to bring it back into people's experiences. Absolutely, and su su such a success in doing that. Before I wrap up, um, I'd love to ask about Relic Goldmine. Sure, we're talking about it uh, on on the episode. Um, when you look back on that film now, what is it that that comes to mind about, about it? Of course, there's you know, quite a, a big production as as well, that, and there's a well storied one as well. But what is it that comes to mind when you think back on that film now? Um, it's hard. I, I haven't seen it in a while. It's, um, but I consider this film, the Velvet Underground film, to be the prequel to mm. the Velvet Goldmine film. Obviously, there's no way. And, and the Kurt Wilde character that Ewan McGregor plays is kind of an amalgam between Iggy Pop and Lou Reed in terms of his relationship to Bowie. And maybe more so Lou Reed mm. in the kind of romantic aspirational kind of meeting of artists uh, aspect of that film. But that they both are about unearthing and trying to commit to film histories of queer culture that have, effect in, that have made certain musical moments possible. And that I find remarkably that those queer uh, culture, and queer is an, an imprecise word to mm -hmm. use about the Velvet Underground era. Um, and the Velvet Goldmine era, you know. Um, we are, it's revisionist, but we'll use it anyway. But the, those ideas are pretty radical mm -hmm. and overt and demonstrative. And yet it's amazing to me how I think even people who saw the movie, uh, uh, the Queen movie, uh, mm -hmm. what's it called? 
Bohemian Rhapsody. Thank you, Bohemian Rhapsody. Like, we're like, oh, I didn't even know he was gay. Even yeah. though it's called Queen, mm -hmm. Freddie Mercury is, <laughs> is singing in falsetto and, in, and is mincing up and down the stage in his, in his sort of uh, village people look with his handlebar mustache and before that in his sort of veils and, and flimsy clothes. You know, sometimes the how radical the, the language is in front of you become, vanishes when music becomes canonized, especially when it's associated with stadium rock and other forms of sort of big music exp musical experiences mm -hmm. and not maintaining that fringe standing, m which, which the glam rock era did more so, but which the underground period mm -hmm. of the 60s did the most. If I could quickly, while I wrap up, ask about Bowie. So I think Velvet Goldmine, even though it's heavily fictionalized, does capture the sense of Bowie and Brian Ferry and other figures of that glam era yeah. were co-opted or subsumed by the mainstream mm -hmm. and re came back on the scene in the 80s and 90s, very tanned and beautiful and pretty. Bowie then, of course, did have a comeback later after Velvet Goldmine was made and had a very artistic end to his career. What did you, what did you think about that final phase in his career? Uh, I think Bowie just continued to keep us on our toes mm -hmm. and and continued to try to find, I mean, all these artists, and Lou Reed is no exception, I think needed to experience success and a certain, touch that wall mm. of, of, um, of real commercial success. And then by doing so, realize the value, if they had forgotten it for a moment or not, of where they came from and of the experimentation that got them there and realized that they occupied that entire trajectory, mm. you know, and uh, had, had to go back. And, and maybe we would have seen more of those returns in Lou Reed had he lived longer as mm. well. But Bowie, I think, just was too curious a mind and too vital a creative um, character to not be always asking questions of himself you know, mm. and while experiencing the sort of full gamut of what a musical, successful musical career could be. Thank you to Todd Haynes for joining us to talk about The Velvet Underground and providing such a great segue into the film club this week, talking as well about Velvet Goldmine, which does share one word uh, with The Velvet Underground, but is a slightly different film, a bit more of a complicated film to set up. So let's do some synopsis before we jump in. Glam rock star Brian Slade, played by Jonathan Rhys Myers, fakes his own death and is later exposed as a fraud. A decade later, in 1984, reporter and former fan Arthur Stewart, played by Christian Bale, is sent out to expose the truth behind the myth and track down the former rocker. So this is a heavily fictionalised sort of essay on the glam rock era with like a hall of mirrors approach to various figures of the time like David Bowie, Lou Reed, Iggy Pop, Brian Ferry, uh, T-Rex as well, Mark Bolan. They're all sort of in there if you want to go the whole hardcore footnote route, but let's talk about it a little bit as a film as well. Hannah, had you watched this before? Was this a first watch for you? Yeah, first watch. I'm very familiar with the film just because I don't think you can be a kind of queer person and not know what Velvet Underground is. Uh, Velvet Goldmine, sorry, it is too much Velvet Underground chat. Um, but it's one that I just never got around to watching as though, you know just so many films and um 
I think I was maybe just waiting for an excuse. So I was glad that mm -hmm. we picked it for Film Club um, because it just gave me that kind of impetus to finally sit, sit down and watch it. Um, and I mean, I'm glad I did. I think it is maybe the cult status it has is a little bit OTT. Um, <laughs> people really, really love this film. Fans are very vocal about this. And for me, I think coming to it from a like, okay, well, this is a masterpiece, isn't it? Because people love this movie. And I was just a bit like, oh, okay, it's, it's a mess. Um, not necessarily in like a disparaging way. I think it is just, um, it's trying to do a lot of things. And I was reading about it last night in bed after I watched it and I saw that David Perry refused to let them use any of his music because he didn't like the script, <laughs> which I think is just so funny because I totally watching it. I'm like, yeah, man, I can understand why he, he wasn't into this. It is kind of all over the shop. And I think the fact it tries to, um, it's basically like a series of kind of these vignettes about um, this rock star who was very successful and went through all these kind of different periods and different personas, very much like um, David Bowie, and then just, you know, disappeared from um, public life. But it's also about Kristen Bell's character and how he came to terms with sexuality because of the music he was listening to. And it's also about Ewan McGregor's character, who was the sort of, um, how would we describe him? The... Uh, so you McGregor is kind of commonly so this is where we get we don't go too far off the deep end um but he is sort of Iggy Pop at the same time as he's Lou Reed right. at the same time okay. as he's Mick Ronson Bowie's guitarist as well right that all, all makes in sense. one he's he's the kind of um the if, if um what's his name I'm gonna read this Brian Slade I keep forgetting his name Brian, Brian's, not, well. <laughs> Brian's not a very rock and roll name, is it? Um, no. So, you know, he's the, the kind of um, bad boy rocker to uh, the sort of more angelic Brian Slade figure. Um, but I just was like, my attention has been pulled in so many directions, I found it very hard to focus on kind of what's going on. Um, but I tell you, yeah, I can totally appreciate why this film would mean so much to people, especially the time yeah. it came out, I think. Um, you know. Well, I think after us talking about the documentary just now and how that is so controlled and so in control of everything it's trying to say and the world it's trying to present to you, this is the opposite of that. Mm. It's just so ex like energetic and f in love with its ideas about the glam rock era, its take on all of the icons and how maybe they built up this dream that the suburban kids could buy into that was really just a fad or really was just a, you know something commercial for the big wigs at the record you know the record labels to sell and then move on and 10 years later would be a completely different commercial act it's got all these ideas in there and i can really see i, I think i'm at times when i watch this and after that afterwards when i go and read up on it I can be tempted into being part of this massive fandom because it is one that really asks you to not only fall in love with all of the performances and the costumes and the music, but also go away and try and figure it out because it is that sort of slightly Im imperfect film, maybe very imperfect film, where you're trying to figure out not only what the film's trying to say, but also who it's saying it's about and what this is meant to relate to historically. Mm. So yeah, as, as you say, Kurt Wilde, the bad boy, it is sort uh, is this amalgamation of characters, but this, what actually happens, the sort of relationship between him and Brian Slade, the Bowie stand-in, never really happened with 
Lou Reed or Iggy Pop or Mick Ronson. To our knowledge. To our knowledge. <laughs> but I, but that's why I think that this is very much about situating yourself in the shoes of Christian Bale's character. Mm. It's sort of like a Citizen Kane for the glam rock era, <laughs> where he's the journalist who's going around and interviewing all the people who are still standing about their takes on this era and the, these personalities, trying to piece together the story. But also at the same time, there's a great shot, which is kind of a fictionalised dramatisation of the thing we hear in every other trad music documentary about Bowie or the glam era, which is when he was on top of the pops. You'd be there in your front room with your mum and dad saying, something's changed. And there's a great moment where Christian Bale, they do some trick of the camera so he looks like he's really tiny, like a little boy, and he's pointing at the TV saying, that's me, that's me, I'm a bisexual. And it's something really... That's You're situated in the fans' view about who these huge rock stars and what their mythologized stories you know what, what how, how that happened which is really fascinating from a music point of view because um music nerds like history and they like facts and the factual approach but there's something really to be gained by having this fictionalized one it is funny bowie probably didn't like the script for many reasons but also brian slade is such a passive character Mm. stuff happens to him and he's kind of outed as a fraud never really shown to have much talent and then reinvents himself as a reaganite um pop star in the 80s which is sort of the the bowie arc i can understand how a bowie fan could feel betrayed um by that maybe in the the 1980s and into the 90s where bowie just was a different artist who he was in the 80s in, in the in the 70s where he did signal a sexual glam rock revolution and already see this is this is what this film inspires in me is this route into music criticism which is so biopics rarely do this Mm. biopics are all factual and more about performance and more about history rather than inspiring conversations about our own relationship with these icons with their music and that's what Todd Haynes does in this and I'm not there the, the Dylan film he made as well but as a film it's also wild because it's so 1998 as a film all of the actors are so young and so beautiful and clearly on the up. You, you have Hugh McGregor just off the back of something like Trainspotting, Jonathan Rhys-Meyers, you have Eddie Izzard, you have um, Tony Collette looking so young, Christian Bale looking like a child, <laughs> and um, but also none of them doing their own accents and they're all doing terrible accents. <laughs> God, yeah, there's some diabolical <laughs> accent work in this film. I just don't, I mean... <laughs> What was the need, guys? <laughs> no, one, no one would have minded if you just all dumbed your usual accent. But I don't know. I mean, I, I do. I love the idea of telling a story about a specific moment in time through the eyes of um, someone who was kind of like on the fringe. Uh, you know, it reminded me a lot of Almost Famous, which I think is mm-hmm. a kind of, it takes a similar approach in that it's, um, I mean that is all set kind of at one time, but this is similar in that it is you're kind of more with um, the fan than you're with the band. You're kind of I do like that you kind of see the reverential respect for them that uh, Stuart had for them when he was younger, but then the kind of way it turns, and I think that happens to all of us when we get older. We realise that our idols are human and it can be quite a difficult um, process and you feel a bit betrayed. And I think you definitely see that with him and kind of the um, seeing these, you know, these massive rock stars as, as actual people who are as flawed and kind of 
sad as everyone else in the world. And it's one I would really like to see like in the cinema with an audience because I don't think it hit me that deeply just watching it on my own at home. But I think in a room with people who kind of love it, it would definitely kind of play differently. Absolutely. I think one thing for me that um, makes it harder to love is that so much of the soundtrack <laughs> is pulled from Roxy Music and Brian Eno. So it's, I, mean, I prefer Brian Eno's solo stuff to Roxy Music, but I'm not a huge Roxy Music fan. And so seeing these clear Iggy Pop, Lou Reed, David Bowie <laughs> stand-ins singing yeah. Roxy Music songs, it, it, it's, it's a bit... It, it, breaks my brain a little bit and I probably would if if, if Bowie had allowed because I, I think Todd Haynes went and said I would like Ziggy Stardust Moon Age Daydream and you know went with like five songs and you can probably watching the film know the exact se- sequences those songs were meant to be in it does um, it breaks my heart a little that Barry, Bowie uh, sorry Bowie didn't like the script enough you know he wouldn't let them use the music I just think it's funny but you know, then you think about some of the films that Bowie's music has been in, particularly since mm-hmm. he died, and you're just like, oh man, like at least Todd Haynes comes from a place of like respect and kind of there been meaning behind wanting to use these songs. Whereas some of the times when I've heard Bowie dropped into a film, <coughs> Jojo Rabbit, I just want to like <laughs> kind of, um, you know, tear my hair out. As a huge Bowie fan, I think it is. Um, is something that really grates on me this kind of like just throwing a Bowie song into a film because you can because it's David Bowie whereas I think this is a film that there is a reverence for the 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 time and the music and the artists but it's not afraid to kind of be critical as well like we said you know it is kind of laying bare Bowie and the idea that sometimes maybe David Bowie did th- did do things for the money <laughs> and um you know I I I think it, it is definitely an interesting film you're never bored i think you you're confused frequently but um you're never bored with this R- rogan has this, is it, i know you've not had a chance to watch this film is it on your radar is it something you'd like to watch one day have we convinced you at all it's you a quite qualified recommendation maybe yeah no definitely i love uh films about pop stars that's like a big a big thing for me um i also love pop stars acting in films i like that's also you know for better or worse i always find it really fascinating uh, so i yeah i'll definitely be checking this out at some point and also yeah i did like see stills from it and christian bale does look like a child it's kind of insane to think like i don't know just who he is now or you know just where where he's gone from this and i and by the sounds of it i really hope that he does something as a sort of strange and you know a passionate again uh, mm-hmm. but yeah no i'll definitely be checking this out for sure and I, 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 you say passionate this this is very much 1998 lots of nudity it's very hot and horny as a film and it is one of those if, if, if you're watching marvel movies now and wondering <laughs> where all that has gone go back to this film for something that's legitimately they didn't leave anything left this is right in the middle of you <laughs> mcgregor's phase where i think he was had a full frontal shot in every seat every, every film he was in in the late 90s right so yeah <laughs> but um yeah velvet gold mine i'm i'm a big fan of this film I, i'd love to watch this in a mini season with films like inside lewin davis these films that do take a period of music history but have a sort of essayistic spin on it and there you have it listeners velvet gold mine velvet underground venom 2 let there be carnage all the v's this week 
Let us know what you make of them at the usual channels at LWLies on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email. Next week, we have June, the French Dispatch, and for Film Club, we're going back to 1980 for Flash Gordon. Hannah Rogan, thank you so much for joining me this week. It's been such a pleasure talking through these films with you. And listeners, please subscribe wherever you pod. And if your podcast player of choice lets you leave reviews, we'd love you to leave one for us too. That's it for this week. We'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 